Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. And today I bring you an episode with Dr. Stephen Eisenstadt. I would like to read his bio, give you a little updates on the podcast and housekeeping, and then just get started. So first, his bio. Stephen Eisenstadt is the founder and chancellor emeritus of Pacifica Graduate Institute, Dreamtending, and the Academy of Imagination. For more than 35 years, he's explored the power of dreams through depth psychology and has devoted his life to understanding the profound wisdom and healing power that exists within each of us and has helped thousands of students, individuals, businesses, and organizations through the techniques revealed in the Imagination Matrix. His work centers on the insight that through our dreams and imagination, we can access limitless creativity, innovation, improve relationships, and ultimately our human potential. He's collaborated with Joseph Campbell, Marion Woodman, Robert Johnson, James Hillman, and Native elders worldwide. He's conducted dream work and imagination seminars throughout the U.S., Europe, and Asia. His website is dreamtending.com. Check him out. It was a fantastic conversation. We talked about his book, uh, The Imagination Matrix, How to Access the Greatest Power You Have for Creativity, Connection, and Purpose. It was a fantastic overview and um, engaging way to help us engage our inner world, uh, the imagination. And he's got tons of stories. I mean, one of the things he let out with is saying he's a storyteller. So you'll see in a minute. He's a very nice to get to know. And I have to thank a mentor of mine, Jill Scott Reagan, for introducing me. And uh, Jill has been an avid dream tender for years. She's been going to his retreats. And I've been hearing about this for over a decade. So it was a real gift to be able to connect with Dr. Eisenstadt. And, uh, and I am excited to bring you the episode. Uh, so on other notes, check out the Center, our sponsor, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative wellness center that my wife and I started a long time ago. We are doing some really radical changes. We've got a great team of clinicians, a few Jungian analysts, a few therapists, a few acupuncturists, and, um, and growing in, in really wonderful ways. So I'll be releasing a number of um, innovations that we're, that we're engaging into that uh, community. Uh, also, check out the Young Center at younghouston.org, J-U-N-G-H-O-U-S-T-O-N.org. Uh, the center, by the way, is the center for H-A-S.com. Uh, also, check out the Sacred Speaks, thesacredspeaks.com. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff on the website. I've started a TikTok project. I know that sounds wild, but uh, kind of all the different social media uh, avenues give uh, an opportunity to engage folks in a different way. So TikTok is kind of a behind-the-scenes daily I'm posting daily, so it's kind of a radical discipline. Instagram is a bit more information and clips from the episode. And, of course, YouTube, I'll be releasing both the episode and the shorts pretty soon. Uh, thank you to Eslin. That was a fantastic experience. Uh, Rodney Waters and I went out to Eslin, taught our class on um, ecstatic experience, music, and Jung's, Jung's Red Book. It was wonderful. It's always great to be at Eslin. Thank you. Uh, and, and also, the upcoming episode with Dr. Becca Tarnas at Pacifica University. Uh, we talked about her dissertation on Tolkien and Jung and their respective red books. So stay tuned for that out in about two weeks. And other than that, check out the website, check out the center. Uh, please follow and share and, uh, and enjoy this episode. Uh, Stephen is such a good intermediary between we and the kind of mushy, undefinable world of the inner imaginal landscape. Thanks for being here. And for now, we'll leave it there. Sure.
Stephen, thank you for this time. I obviously have uh, uh, an incredible insider knowledge because I've read the book, The Imagination Matrix, how to access the greatest power you have for creativity, connection, and purpose. And uh, I, I finished it and come up with a bunch of questions that, in my experience, what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you uh, two questions, and then we're not going to get to any of the rest of the questions because that's just the way it works. <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, I tell stories. Is that going to be okay if I share some so, stories? Man, please. I, I'm, I'm going to ask you to share some. So you're, you're, that's good. Okay. You're All a step right. ahead of me. So okay. welcome to The Sacred Speaks. And I wonder if you could just set up the viewer and the listener on this book, and then we'll just dive into a number of questions that I've got. So just tee us up. All right. Well, you know, it's been a while coming. I've been working with people and with dreams uh, for decades now. And um, as I've been working with dreams, I've noticed um, over time that dreams come with so much. They, they offer us guidance. They will talk about what we're missing in life. Um, they offer um, an abundance of expression and point us towards our sense of uh, purpose. And two, there's something more, and thus the imagination matrix, because they do offer portals. If we bring our curious mind into relationship with the dream, they'll offer portals into the realms of deep imagination. And that was the inspiration that really mused the formulation of this book that I wanted to share with folks far and wide. Well, you did it wonderfully. I mean, just to note, the book has practices and opportunities to, I, I, I guess that brings us to the first question, which is we are in such a materialist consensus, externally oriented world, and we're trained in that world. And I, I, I got a sense that, you know, you're writing this book to, to begin to um, really help people start to navigate some of the mushiness uh, of the inner world. So uh, could you please talk about how you, how you have helped people begin to go inside, whatever that means? Mm. Yeah, and I was just in a workshop this morning that I was offering, working with uh, corporate executives, actually. Uh, and I work with people from uh, school-age children, in the elementary grades through the university of course and then into adult life uh, and this morning it had to do with um opening curiosity and i think that is the way in we live in a world that is so commodified firstly which is fine there's nothing wrong with that necessarily it's just that we become programmed you know and we mm -hmm. spend so much time in front of the screen uh and then the busy mind takes over and the rational mind takes precedence and again nothing wrong we need all those facilities it's just that we begin to distance from something that is essential something more authentic our sense of well really all the way goes towards our calling you know our life's purpose which gets lost somewhere in that journey and the book really orients around the, the access to the resources of deep imagination and it starts with curiosity curiosity and Curiosity, of course, opens when we're very little, one, two, three, four years old, the child's mind that's naturally curious, the natural mind. Uh, then we go into school, then the machines come in, they, now the devices start happening when we're literally one or two years old, they're babysitters now, used that way. Yeah. And curiosity takes on a different formulation, right? And in fact, it almost gets replaced by 
you know, outside programming or scripts of one sort or the next. So the intent now is to reawaken curiosity. That's the beginning place. That's everything. The first chapter of the book is devoted to curiosity, yeah. awakening curiosity. And um, from there, you know, portals become available and we have the capacity and the ability to then experience what it's like to be inside of an imaginal mind inside of the our innate our innate inheritance which is imagination from the beginning actually it reminds me of a story you said storytelling earlier it reminds me of a story a friend of mine was sharing she grew up in the 70s and her father came home one day and left about three tabs of lsd on the the, the dresser and at four years old she just gobbled them up and oh. not i don't advocate for this or recommend this to anybody <laughs> But her mom took her to the doctor, and her mom, of course, was freaking out. And the doctor said, look, we'll watch her vitals. But quite frankly, kids are in this place all the time, and so it's not really that big of a deal for her. It makes Isn't me that... think of childhood. Well, that's right. You know, there is something um, about the child's mind. Mm -hmm. Not childishness. See, that's how it gets dismissed and marginalized. But the innate spontaneity of the child's mind. And we know that. I mean... Actually, you know, I remember when our daughter was young, younger, much younger, and she was in a room and, you know, all these conversations were going on and, you know, that we heard sounds coming from the bedroom, the door was shut. We were certain, my wife and I, certain that she had friends over, right? We were even making a meal for her, my, our daughter and her friends. We knocked on the door and who's there? Our daughter and friends for sure, yeah. but not literal friends, her imaginal friends. And she was interacting and engaging and sparking and really, really involved with her imagination, which is the intent of this book, you know, to really re-engage in an animated world, in an imaginal landscape. Mm -hmm. And it's not imaginal in the sense that it is less than the material world. In fact, mm -hmm. just the contrary, it enhances it opens us to the imagination of other people and the creatures and the things that we participate with in the world. Yeah. Well, you talk about innate genius in the book, and uh, you, draw, you keep drawing these lines between imagination and creativity and curiosity and innate genius to personal film, fulfillment and well-being for both self and others. Would you draw that line? But in particular, I'd like for you to define genius in the way that you do. And maybe we can, that's a good, that's a good defining moment. Okay. Well, yeah. And I think how you laid that out was really, you know, right on for me at least. And that is um, with curiosity, right? Something comes forward. And we know that now, all the research. Now there's meta studies of research that mm. when we're in curiosity, uh, something else happens. We, you know, actually the mind-brain system work, uh, shifts. We go from essentially alpha to theta. We go to theta state, which then creates a different way of being present, you know? Creativity opens, innovation opens, our sensitivity to ourselves, to others increases. Uh, and what happens in my direct experience is something begins to present itself. And what presents itself is something that I have named innate, innate genius. Now, what I'm suggesting is all of us, all of us have the capacity 
to connect with our innate genius. And of course, in in the world of today, we attribute genius to very special people, and they are extraordinary, extraordinary people that come into the world, whether they be incredible musicians or scientists or artists. You know, we have a sense and we can attribute genius to those folks, for sure. That's easy to do. To make connection to our personal innate genius, which is ever-present and available to every person. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something else again. And there is, um, you mentioned story. The story does come to mind. Um, Let me share this one. A couple are coming to mind now. These are people I've actually worked with. So... um, you know, there's this fellow that uh, this happened about a year ago or so. And, um, you know, I'm offering workshops here and there now all over the world. I'm just about to go to China, believe it or not, to do a big piece there. And um, a, a fellow comes in. He's doing fine, right? And he is uh, he's a contractor. And, you know, he's spent his life in that work. And... Um, Provides for his family, worked hard to get to where he was and is, and uh, everything was going well. But something brought him to this workshop. It would—it's not something he would ordinarily do, mm. but he was not. Something wasn't feeling right. He was just starting to feel down, and each day was getting more routine. He was feeling the burden of the ordinary workload and the too muchness of that. His light was dimming, and he knew it. And he was getting comments now from his family that, hey, you're just not yourself anymore. And, you know, when that happens, that leads to kind of uh, out of sorts at the beginning. A little bit of depression starts coming in and mm-hmm. the rest of the story. So he comes to this workshop. And that's usually, you know, people will come if they're feeling either inspired by something on one hand and or hurting in a particular way. He was hurting. And he came in. And he said, look, you know, I'm here because, you know, I was encouraged. Some people recommended and I'm just feeling out of sorts. And I was listening to him and I was saying, you know, let me offer you an idea. He goes, yeah, I'm I'm open. Actually, I'm open to most anything at the moment. All right, here's an idea. Let's awaken curiosity. He says, well, okay, well, I, you know, that's something I can do. I know curiosity. Well, you know, let's really bring emphasis and underscore. So I suggested for the next five days, why don't you do this? Allow yourself to be outside, open your vision. You know, we're very focused more often than not in our vision, open to peripheral vision. I even use my fingers, you know, narrow vision, focused vision, peripheral vision, wider vision, metaphor of owl, big eyes, Mm -hmm. able to see a bigger picture. so very a simple exercise, but very inviting. I said, go into the world place and take some breath, you know, really deepen. Give yourself 15 minutes. So that's doable, right? 15 minutes. And walk about, walk on the street, walk on a trail in a naturescape. You know, just take some time away from family and work and with peripheral vision and see what happens. And just take notes of what you hear and or see or smell. Okay, So we use our senses, smell, touch, taste, listening, and make some field notes. Really simple. And let's do that for five days. There's no end. There's no goal. We're just going to 
continue in that activity. So oh, sure, I can do that. That's okay. Actually, that's good because I need more breaks. <laughs> you know, so I'll just need to take some more breaks, and this is perfect. So he does that. Five days later, he comes back. We have another conversation. You know, it was pretty interesting. And he brings his journal. He took a bunch of little notes, not a journal per se, but he took his, his notebook that he was using. And he shared with me. And he, I said, look, this, 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 and this, and this. So that really, that's fantastic. Let's do this. Let's take another five days. We can go back there again. Open. Now you have a sense of what this is like. And take additional notes field notes does that comes back five days later whoa okay uh dr eisenstadt steve i'm really there's something that's happening there is something that is happening i do want to share that with you i say well go on you know that's my favorite the two favorite questions i have when i'm with people go on and how so <laughs> open mm. questions. Mm. now what does this mean or how did this work just go on how so <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, and he said, "Well, I don't know. My breath was deepening, and I'm starting to really listen to sounds like birds singing, and I heard the wind in the trees. <laughs> you know, and it was like really something. And I saw glints of light on things. You know, he's just really in his imaginative place. His curiosity was awakening. Right? Mm. He was now again, as we should talk about, in that childlike experience, childlike that mind." with interest i said okay here's one last thing i'm going to offer you you know all those little notes that you've scribbled over the last you know the field notes over the last couple of weeks what i'm going to invite you into is hey take them and just start to let them find each other we're going to make a mosaic of these notes just allow them to one after the next intersect with one another and he did and he said and then sketch them i mean not make a painting just sketch them into a design into a pattern which he did and then the most curious thing happened. I saw him one last time and he said, whoa, okay, I have to tell you something. Uh, something's going on inside that's really extraordinary. I, I'm just looking at things differently, right? My perspective is changing. And I went to work and yes, I, I can do this. I'm doing it successfully. I'm working well with the employees, but you know what? I just touched into what's really true for me. I, I'm burning out there. I don't, mm -hmm. I'm doing well, but I don't really, it's not fulfilling. It was, I mean, I'm not going to abandon ship. I'm not going to hurt the employees. I'm going to provide for my family, but I'm really not feeling very fulfilled and it's affecting everything. I mean, my kids are noticing it. My wife is noticing, even I'm getting comments from, you know, people that are working for me and colleagues. And uh, then I had an idea. I said, well, go on, <laughs> you know, how so? He said, well, I remembered another time in my life when I really did feel fulfilled. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, I believe it or not, I remember being in middle school. Like, I think it was eighth grade. And I was taking a wood shop, mm. you know, class in wood making, wood shop. And I just remember when I was in that space, how incredibly fulfilled I felt. Mm artistic oh my gosh i felt such an abundance of really a certain kind of passion that returned okay time passed i, I said that's extraordinary that's fantastic maybe you can include even little bits of that more so in your awake life like a couple projects and he said yeah that's just what i'm gonna do and actually it's what he did he started creating 
some projects in his garage, he came home a little earlier and started a little later and he started, okay. Six months later, I see him again. What happened is he shifted really fully. And what he did is he went from being the owner of the company, the foreman, he still owns the company, but he passed that on to a manager. And now he's become a finished carpenter. Mm. He's really found his passion, his interest, you know, a finished carpenter and the stuff that he's making is extraordinary. And, you know, I attribute that not to something extraordinary, but he did reconnect with his innate genius, his genius that allowed him to really find the love that's moving through him, you know, the care, the the creativity, perhaps is even a better word, the creative, the love of his creativity that's moving through him. And now his work is really prized, honestly, in Santa Barbara. He's very um, highly regarded for the, the carpentry that he creates for people. Beautiful. Yeah. So a, a question, I'm, I'm a clinician and I'm, I'm wondering in these scenarios how you deal with resistance when you suggest to somebody to go take a look and go spend even five, 15 minutes, you know, the, uh, how do you deal with that when you have somebody that's like, uh, look, I didn't have the time. I just didn't do it. I don't care. I don't want to. What do you say? Yeah, I say very simple. Oh, you don't care. I don't have time to do it. And I'll respond. Oh, how so? Right? <laughs> What's that like? Not to care. Not to make what does that open inside of you? Not to make the time and to stay outside of that. We go, okay. Yeah, <laughs> oh, right on. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, right. And as soon as I say that, as soon as I see that, oh, uh, okay, what's awakening is curiosity. Now I'm really curious about that, right? <laughs> so yeah. I, well played, kind of, man. I like that. Psychic Aikido, right? As a clinician, you know, it's psychic Aikido. You, you, you enter the dance. You don't prescribe yeah. more to dos. That's the opposite, because that's going to meet with the. <laughs> you, know, you just get curious of what is. Right? Well done. Well, so with that in mind, you know, we're talking about these. Um, you you note this because almost you have to note it. You know that your imagination matrix sir it does serve as a medium for problem solving and incubating new solutions. You. You talk often about the ways in which you've worked with some of these people in tech, people in industry, you know. So would you speak a little bit about that for folks who who do have a resistance around this weird imaginal stuff, but noting how it does manifest, as you just said, maybe some more stories come to mind. Yes. Well, there is another story, actually, that does come to mind. Uh, this one I think I did write in the book. Um, she was extraordinary. Uh, she was a she a family a husband and two small children, younger children, and she was working as a nurse in a hospital. Very effective. Um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to be a parent of young kids and do anything really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was a, a beautiful parent, and she and her husband worked out ways that they could find enough time for themselves to feel fulfilled. It's work. It's a challenge for sure. That uh, and two. Um, you know, he was year four, year five at the hospital. And it was a wonderful hospital. And she was really starting to get drained as well. Um, the task, the everydayness of it. And she was noticing something, though. She was noticing that um, I offered her the same possibilities. Notice what is happening in your life that sparks curiosity. And I know you you're, have to be, by definition, task-oriented. And you need to be in the discipline of what it is to be a nurse, 
you do. Uh, in addition, just keep an open mind, right? Keep your curiosity alive. Pick up hints as you're in your day-to-day -day and see what comes forward. And what she noticed, right, was that um, there was music. And she mm. loved music. And she did. And what she would do is she would hum. That's how she comfort, self-comfort, humming. And even when she was with patients, I mean, she had to stay in her discipline, of course, and not to make anybody uncomfortable, of course. But she would hum to herself. Um, it was incredible. And I said, well, that's curious. I'll say more about that. Well, you know, I've always loved music and I've always loved to sing. Actually, she said, when I was in high school, I was part of the high school choir, you know, the choral. She just would sing. She loved it, loved it. And I said, notice what's awakening. Yeah, I know. But, hmm. you know, then I got called into nursing and I like that too. I love it. Uh, but I just seem like, and with the children, I just kind of given up all my musical capacity. And I, I don't make time for music. I said, well, yeah, well, why don't we continue to notice? All right, I'm going to make this one. It's a long story. <laughs> Sessions go by. She comes back, you know, Steve, um, I, I'm not going to give up nursing because I like nursing. And it's important for our family right now to do that. But there is something else that's happened. I've noticed that when I'm walking in the hospital, that there are places that we could bring music. I said, well, say more. How, how can you imagine that? Well, I just know that when I'm humming to myself, it's really comforting. And I know that now when I was with patients, I tried this. I started just humming something softly, you know, not obnoxiously and always with permission. And, um, and they were comforted. All right, check this out. A year later, I read visit with her and what happened truly is that she shared this with some of the hospital administration <laughs> and they thought well that's really interesting she now is a nurse in the hospital she is and she has now orchestrated to use a, a wonderful metaphor orchestrated a program in the hospital where she brings in music for people that are in a particular levels of distress and need can you believe that she brought such a good arena music oh it is oh, oh. It's beautiful. So good. Yeah. Well, so I want to back up because a couple of the things that I'm personally interested in your in your work is, of course, in the depth psychological arena. You know, your your uh, beginnings at Pacifica University, hanging out and being influenced by James Hillman, Bly, Robert Johnson, Jung, Joseph Campbell. Yeah, so I'm interested about your framework of depth psychology and how it informs your work, because in particular, I really want to get at this. Um, you, you, you go so elegantly into active imagination and discussing inner figures. And I noticed that a lot of folks really struggle around even putting form to inner figures. So could you talk about kind of your formation in depth psychology and also this world of the inner Figures, you note, of course, the, you know, the wisdom, the peace, the, the guardian, the protector, um, the wise person. So talk a little bit about the inner figures and your history. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's my lifeblood, right? Um, that's perhaps my calling. And I have been privileged to work with um, extraordinary elders, you know. These are elders in the field that have devoted their life and their time and energy to cultivating the ground uh, of, of the orientation of 
of the depth psychological calling. I would want to mention Marion Woodman in there mm. as well. Yeah, and all of those folks I met personally. I had the um, great honor of collegially working with each of them mm. and uh, being with them outside of Jung. Although with Jung, he's been profoundly instrumental in so many ways, mm. as well as el elders in you know First Nation peoples and in indigenous cultures. Um, it's in there's there's something about the inner life of psyche mm -hmm. that is populated with these inner figures, right? And what happens when Hillman, I mean, we've always had this idea of guided imagination or active imagination, and uh, it kind of got construed as guided imagery almost, that mm -hmm. we can use our imagination to evoke figures. That's a guided imagination. And we know how helpful that's been in so many ways from working with can in cancer treatment of A, B, and C, and D to use active imagination to develop, you know, kind of companions that will support us. The difference is, and I think it's misconstrued, that when Jung, Carl Jung, was talking about active imagination, he really wasn't talking about us doing something. It's not an activity that we would do. Rather, active imagination refers to the imagination itself being active. Mm. The imagination with an autonomy of its own in its activity. That's mm. how Jung really was thinking about and conceptualizing active imagination. It got shifted in when we operationalized or when you know, we started to build curriculum around the Jungian approach for the most part. Of course, I work. I have the privilege of working some extraordinary analysts that have really taken it into other spaces altogether. Hillman comes along, right, and suggests, "Hey, in addition, let's experience the psyche, her, him, themselves, as the many selves, the many figures of psychic life, right? The many entities, like in the dream time. In the dream time, you know, we sometimes will see ourselves as a figure in the dream." Right? That happens, what, 80% of the time for people that are dreaming, um, remembering dreams. We all dream, but those that we remember. But when we see ourselves in the dream, the question then becomes, who's dreaming the dream? You know, And the idea here is that the psyche is alive with an autonomy of its own. The psyche itself is dreaming the dream. The figures in the dream are dreaming the dream along with us in the landscape in the motif of the dream. So if that's the case, then how do we deepen our relationship with these various figures that I name soul companions, that we deepen our relationship with these figures of dream, and what do they have to share with us, right? Very different approach than what does this mean, right? Mm -hmm. What does this have to do with me? Mm -hmm. That's different. It gives way to different questions. Who's visiting now? Who's visiting now? Hmm. What's happening here? So now we're into a different landscape altogether. We are bringing ourselves into the living, autonomous landscape of psyche, right? Of imagination, of an animated, illuminated imagination, where we can participate and become partnered with. We can deepen relationships with these various images. Even the nightmarish, which is really what's up at the moment, because all of us are part of the circumstances 
world today. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm with young people and people in their, you know, later stages in life, I mean, it's agitation, crippling anxiety, depression, isolating depression, isolation. Those are symptoms that are more and more prevalent. So how do we move from there into a different way of being present inside of self, inside of ourself? Well, one possibility is to really deepen relationship with the many selves that are always in imagination. Immediately that evokes curiosity. When we're in curiosity, we're not gonna be anxious, we're not gonna be depressed. Curiosity, anxiety, and depression, they don't live together. The reciprocal inhibitors, that's the great news, right? If we're authentically curious, if we are really inside imagination, deepening our relationship with imagination, even as I suggest in the book, journeying along with these figures in the realms and through the realms of deep imagination. Mm-hmm. If we're there, something happens. We're not anxious. We're not depressed. We're not. We have our support figures. You know, we have those figures that are guides for us. You know, we deepen relationships with the varieties of these different entities, these psychic beings. And they can be figures that are look like people, they can be animals, they can be landscapes, they can be emotions, right? But when we are with these different elements, these different entities, um, then we're part of an inner community. And I can tell you, it's it, 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 for me, it is what changes a life, to be involved with an inner community of soul companions, the name that I offer, soul companions, to be part of that community, not only do we feel supported, but there is a sense of belonging, deep belonging. Mm-hmm. So we do need our external communities, yes, of course, now more than ever, to be mm-hmm. with others, like-minded others that are, you know, have a, a care for us as we do for them and for whatever advocacy that we're involved with. So crucial. And two, to be connected to an inner community of these soul companions it's a life, it's a game changer. It changes a life. If I go and I do, you know, I'll offer keynote lectures to sometimes thousands of people in the audience, certainly hundreds of people, or in a small leadership group in a corporation. Um, you know, if I go in alone, or if I'm teaching a course, if I'm going alone, I can do that now because I have life experience. I have my lecture. <laughs> I have my discipline. I can do it. It's just different. <clears throat> if I start the day with first coming inside and aligning with these soul companions mm-hmm. and then offer the lecture, well, firstly, I come off the page within five minutes, right? I did more spontaneous. <laughs> I'm more right. confident for sure, you know, and I just feel like I'm I'm not there by myself. Yeah, do I have a little performance anxiety when things are big? I do. But that anxiety, in addition there's it transmutes and I describe the process of transmuting the hard places, the anxiety or the fear or the feeling left out or being rejected or all the things, the complexes we call it psychologically. You know, yes, they are real. They are part of my humanity, my direct experience. Those two can be transmuted and we can look behind the veil and notice which companion is here now. And to the extent that we can befriend these companions and then sustain relationship, now I have the possibility of being in the world and in my relationship, right? And with kids and in the workplace with colleagues, not alone and not so subject to reactivity. Because when I'm anchored in that way, I'm 
much more responsive. I'll listen first rather than go quickly and tell or judge mm-hmm. or critique. Yeah, because I'm I have my support system. Well, you the said support. you said the word, and I, I wanted to follow up on that. Your this idea of illumination and transmutation, and you you mentioned it earlier when you talk about inner companions. Of course, there's a real concern that what people inevitably stumble upon would be what many in our tradition call the shadow. So would you talk about illumination, transmutation in the context of this shadow figure? Yeah, and I even named that as well, the shadow companions, you know, now what? I mean, and they are, they're tough, right? Mm-hmm. And I named just a few just now, left out, um, all, all those kinds of things. Um, I will um, talk about that. Let me give an example, though. You mentioned Joseph Campbell, right? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I love Joseph Campbell. I like his work. His name, it's funny. His name is coming up again and again with these last uh, number I, of I months. just taught it. I was at Esalen. I led a workshop at Esalen last week, and the I was driving in on the one and uh, uh, listening to Romancing the Grail in his oh. series. And it was he's just up in my world, too, so I love that you're going there. I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> All right. Well, then I'm going to tell the bigger story. <laughs> Well, you brought in Esalen, you know, you got in Esalen. <laughs> well, that's where I met Joseph, right? Wow, so I met Joseph cool. at Esalen, yeah, and it was when I was in my early 20s. He was up there and he was doing his thing. He had just, uh, <laughs> yeah, he had just retired from Sarah Lawrence in New York, which was a all-women's school then, and um, he was just coming out into the world, right? Of course, Hero of a Thousand Faces he had written earlier, and that was out, but not popular. Nobody really heard of it not fully not yet not then but he came down to um to visit with me and uh, no i visited with him at esalen and he would just sit and talk story he'd tell story i'll never forget you know i mean during the lunchtime and you know at esalen and during the dinner time at the in that area yeah and then um you know i would attend his workshops and listen to him as he did so beautifully talk myth mm-hmm and story and he'd bring his slides and, and that's how it worked back then he brings a deck of slides and put the slide up and then he would just go off into stories and you know legends and folklore and fairy tale and mythic motifs it was extraordinary Beautiful. to listen to just be. and he always centered around one idea and he said you know this is all really cool and what matters most is how it really lives in your life mm-hmm. he always wanted to make it experiential he said he attributed that to his work at Sarah Lawrence, where his students all demanded that of him. They were all, he was a male professor, of course, he, all these females, he said, yes, 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 Dr. Campbell, but how does it live in my life? How does it make a difference? And so he always had to come up with a relationship between the mythic motif. All right, so let's go forward a little bit. So I'd pick him up in my little VW bug, you know, at the airport with, he had two Oh my goodness, I haven't shared this for so long. He had two suitcases he'd bring with him, right? One suitcase uh, with clothes and then another suitcase. And I'd take him to his hotel, help him get settled. It was shocking to me. The one suitcase with the clothes was um, just one change of clothes. That's it. Very light, nothing. The other suitcase filled with slide decks and books. (laughs) He's just like amazing what he brought with him. It was really remarkable. And he'd always wear a coat. And the coat, when he was working, was always the same coat. And I thought, well, maybe that's why that other suitcase, remember, I'm in my 20s. I don't know what's going on. It's all bigger than life at that point. 
And I thought, well, maybe it's he can't afford another coat. <laughs> I don't know, maybe there's something going on that I'm not seeing. You know? And then one day I asked him, you know, in all innocence, I said, Joe, I, uh, I call him Joe then, but uh, Dr. Campbell, you know, um, what, uh, uh, I'm just curious, is there something that I could help you with? Do we need, an oh, Steve, no. No, no, I wear the same coat because when I'm, this is what I present to the outside world. Hmm. I just want to be part of the world. And this persona is what allows me to blend in and be part of everybody else, with everybody else. He said, but look at this. Then he takes this coat and he opens it. Oh, my gosh. What's inside is this incredibly, beautifully woven tapestry and design of color, similar to what's on your back wall there, but just this amazing yeah. picture. Wow. Yeah, just amazing you know, embroidered in this beautiful, beautiful way. And, oh, he said, yes, I wear this on the inside because oh. this reflects, you know, the stories that are moving through me. Wow. It's close to my heart, right? Close to my heart. Okay. So a couple of years passed. Now we become friends and uh, we're now colleagues and friends. And then the Bill Moyer series comes out on yeah. public, uh, what you're mentioning. And then uh, we used to have like, 16, 18 people in the little Isla Vista, that's the little commu student community next to the University of California. When that came out, I, we went downtown to what was called the, Ar it is still the Arlington Theater. Now there are thousands of people after watching the series that would show up for his lectures and his presentations and all like that. He was very, very generous. He left a lot of the resources so we could actually uh, establish Pacifica Graduate Institute. Yeah. He was very, very generous. He was wonderful that way, with me at least and with us. Um, then here's the story going back to Shadow and the Shadow Companions. He said one day, you know, um, I just received an invitation that I wanted to talk with you about. We're at, I'll never forget, we're at the wharf in Santa Barbara having dinner, right? He'd always get the exact same thing. The local sea bass and a little Glenlivet. He loved Glenlivet scotch. So one little shot of Glenlivet shot, scotch and the local sea bass. And then he said to me, Steve, you know, uh, I just got this invitation. And as a young fellow, um, remember, he's from a different era. <laughs> he's from <laughs> decades, decades ago. And uh, he's inviting me up to his place. It's a ranch up north somewhere. And he's, he read Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he's thinking about making a movie. <laughs> I said, well, uh-huh. Do you remember his name? <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to be George Lucas. He said, yeah. I said, that's it. I said, yeah, well, because I went to UCLA and I was in the film school and collaborated with the USC film school. Blah, 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 blah. So I knew the name and saw some early work. Yeah, you know, Joe, I think it, it actually is worth a trip up there. It's a good idea. I, I support you doing this. Hmm, okay, I think I will then. All right, so, you know, in his own right, he's incredibly sophisticated. <laughs> Joseph Campbell, I'm very astute. Went up, and uh, the next time I saw him, three months later, you know, Fine young chap, that man. Fine <laughs> chap. And I think he really gets it. I feel like he really understands it. So I said, yes, go ahead. Well, the rest is history, right? Yeah. And uh, then the Star Wars comes out. And, of course, now generations later, many generations, the iteration of that motif has mm. been you know, in all kinds of medium, mm. right? all kinds of medium, sequels, prequels, for the little ones, for the kids. I mean, it's all over. And George Lucas, always so generous with his mm. 
always generous, always acknowledging his influence in the work of Joseph Campbell, the shadow companion. Remember episode one, right? Mm-hmm. Now we have Luke Skywalker, right? And he's entering into the place of the, <clears throat> the biggest of the shadow companions, all dressed in shadow garb, you know? And that's the Darth Vader character of episode one, which is now in the middle of the trilogy. Um, and he, uh, Luke is caught. I mean, he is really threatened. The empire is threatened. Everything is threatened, you know? And uh, what's he going to do? How is he going to face this shadow figure? And he has to have his soul companions, right? You can't do it alone. We need protection. We need support, right? We need capacity. Uh, we need something more than a rational mind or a particular weapon. That's not going to work. So, you know, the story goes, he's blessed with the companion of Obi-Wan, mm-hmm. his teacher, you know, Yoda, with capacity, a different way of making approach. He has the support and protection. He lets go, deepens into imagination and deepens into his, you know, essential resource. He's now in his flow, right, with what was named the force, mm-hmm. with the, the depth of capability for each of us, our flow our sense of life force, you know, that anchor, that way of being present. And what happens with a shadow companion? You know, the one that's most menacing and difficult and threatening. Mm -hmm. He's wearing the mask, the veil is lifted, and who does he discover? He discovers the figure behind that horrible, threatening entity. And he discovers father, right? Mm -hmm. And with vulnerability, that one. When the mask is off, that shadow figure becomes extraordinarily vulnerable. And ultimately, you know, ultimately very helpful and important, an ally, really, for Luke, a, nece- a necessary relationship to allow the next evolution of the journey. And for each of us, that's what I, I feel passionate about this, as you can tell, right? Each of us, we just carry that, I guess, because I've been a therapist for so many years, clinical and psychology and marriage family therapy and high school and <laughs> high school counseling mm-hmm. it's just what we struggle with it's what people come to see us about right it's where we are in pain and hurt that place you know the place where we're tight and constricted and it is from these very elemental things that i was mentioning you know the critic or the judge that we feel or growing up in a critical family system or feeling judged or just not good enough or feeling the rejection that I was talking about or the bigger one, failure, which is horrible, you know, and then our whole life gets orchestrated by us being in reaction to those psychological complexes. Well, you know, it's possible to personify them. So it's not just a feeling that we're caught by that's inside. And then we get identified in that feeling. Then we'll do everything we can figure out to organize our lives to avoid that. You can imagine the drain energetically that that takes. And then we lose contact with our destiny, our true calling. We're now just trying to survive with good reason, right? And then when there's put in some early trauma, you know, that then just amplifies the whole game. So how do you work with that, right? Well, we have to transmute those figures. it's, It's a process, transmutation process of working through the shadow figures to and I, and I don't want to idealize or romanticize this because I just been working with myself personally and with people for too long to know that it's not just an easy fix kind of thing mm-hmm. but there is a process where we can 
know, really bring ourselves to those figures in a different way. Again, the support and protection, the soul companions I talked about, we need to be have them by our side as well as people in our outside community that are supportive and caring. And then we come into contact. We allow them to personify, to come into form. So we right there, we disidentify. Instead of them being, I'm identified with the figure, I am my rejection, right? I am the victim of feeling criticized. I am that figure, right? We put it outside, we personify, bring it out in front. So immediately there's distance. Now we have the capacity to deepen a relationship and I give lots of skills to do that. You know, how to have a dialogue. And as we do, something different happens, just as what happened with Darth Vader figure. You know, we begin to see that one often in its vulnerability, truly. That's the surprise that happens, right? The one that was so menacing and difficult underneath the veil, because of their pain, usually in their early suffering, underneath that veil, there is a vulnerability that comes forward. And truly, those figures can become some of our most important allied figures. And now people have written books about that, you know, the uh, romancing the shadow, and there's just a whole numbers of books where we can transmute that one into allies they then and i'll just pause here they then become incredible soul companions along with the others when we journey next into the deeper realms of imagination Mm -hmm. oh oh to have those along with us makes it's the difference that makes all the difference they just have capacities and in awake life too now rather than you know getting caught in situations where we're always meeting those same figures because we haven't done that work. And so then we ultimately, you know, get into relationship with those figures. Sometimes we marry those figures. <laughs> it's like, oh, so we create distance. In fact, we, with those figures as soul companions, we're not so vulnerable to people like that. You know, we see that coming and oh, that's not what I'm interested in. So I know that's a longer no, I have so many questions. I mean, of course, you bring up a question of a living myth. You know, I can't. Uh, but I, so I want to go there, but I also want to go to your book. And I know we only have about 11 minutes. So the question that I would ask you, I want to I want to talk about your quadrant, which I think is important to get into. The question I would ask you, though, also, maybe you can kind of merge these two together is something Nietzsche notes about a living myth, uh, uh, the death of God, for example. And here we're talking about Campbell and not having a living mythology, um, how disruptive that can be. And so you've posited four quadrants as a way of differentiating kind of these various dynamics where we have opportunities to engage with the creative imagination. So could you talk a little bit about that? Maybe you get over to living myth, but... I certainly want to talk about your four quadrants. <laughs> I'm going to take a deep breath in. <laughs> yeah, go, go, man. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah. Well, you know, um, for me, I got real interested in these, exploring these realms of imagination, which I named the, the imagination matrix, right? The web of imagination, the tapestry of imagination, like Joseph Campbell's <laughs> coat, the embroidered, the Beautiful. tapestry. Beautiful. And what I noticed in this tapestry is that there are quadrants. Now, they're not, I I don't want to literalize, but just for our discussion, different quadrants, because the imagination is made up of many, many, many things. But certainly part of it is the regenerative, the regenerative energies of earth, you know, Mm. of nature. I was just with another group this morning, actually, really early on, and they were way 
into talking about the regenerative, restorative capacities mm. that Earth offers mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. To the extent that we separate from that, mm, um, we have a hard time, yeah. uh, which is a other conversation. Totally. And then the other quadrant is what we just talked about, the imagining psyche, right? The um, the mind, but not just the rational mind, the curious mind and what that brings with it, the many images and figures of imagination. That's the place of story and mythology. Mm -hmm. that place. Mm -hmm. The third quadrant is a machine, but it's the new technologies, but we're part of a world we've always been part of a world where there has been machine from the very beginning and now it's evolved into a b c and d and the waves are still <laughs> reaching the shore you know by the time we're finished there'll be another technological yeah so but we have to bring that into account because that's part of our lives right and uh it's part of it and from a psychological and physiological because the imagination matrix is as you said applied so i work with illness and disease mm -hmm. and uh, there's ways of working with illness and disease in complementary ways to traditional and important um, uh, healthcare providers. Uh, but functionality of our body is a machine. How does that work? How does functionality work? How does technology inform our life? How does that quadrant interact in imagination? How do we keep imagination in an increasingly technological world, particularly our humanity in a world mm -hmm. of skills? So, screen oriented and then the fourth quadrant is of course the transcendent right whatever we call it the universal mm -hmm. some people name spiritual but that which is transcendent and that really becomes important when we're working in complementary medicine working with imagination it's a belief in hey you know there is something in addition to that i can place belief in in relation to you know moving in a healthier on a healthier path you know, just that, but something that is transcendent, the cosmos, looking at the night sky and noticing the stars. So the confluence between those quadrants, because they're interrelated and they intersect, and those places of intersection where they interrelate, I mentioned it earlier when I said the mosaic, the patterns, and you can open portals and go through. So that's what I uh, talk about and outline. I do for myself in the morning, in imagination, I remember how those dynamics interact, interplay. And then what I would like to do is make it very applied, very practical. How do we experience the intersections of when those four qualities come together? And when we experience those intersections, what opens up? What's the access point into the realms and to journey in and through imagination? Hmm. It was... The early uh, when I was working on my dissertation, I was really interested in four levels of interpretation of ancient texts. And I, I then wanted to look at the ways in which we could interpret reality. And so I, I loved the way you brought these ideas in. In particular, something that I think is really important in six minutes is machine. You brought machine into it. And Everybody, there's such a reactivity around this idea of way te ways that technologies is harmful, but but I wish people would talk more in the way that you are about these extensions of consciousness that really help uh, expand our capacities to show up in the world in healthy ways. So you gave a public service announcement in your book 
which is a valuable one. And I heard you say earlier, you've worked with high school and, and kids, and I, I have too. I've been a counselor in those contexts. So could you give a PSA as we're closing on, on parents uh, for their children who are consumed with screens and how we can navigate through that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'd, I'd be delighted to. Yeah, yeah. That like you for me, that service, that is exactly what that is. Yeah. yeah I just attended about uh, what now four months ago, the unified school district sponsored mm. for parents scared to death. They losing their kids yeah. to the school. They really are frightened. And they had parents sitting around different tables, sharing their stories. Oh my God, it was heartbreaking. Mm. Of course, and frightening. They're frightened. So the question becomes, all right, look, this isn't, the actuality of our world we're not going to get rid of technology that's silly to think that mm. um we need to figure out a way to navigate to co-create along with to keep our humanity keep relationship in family life right so i give a number of examples but we have to figure that one out we do and uh, i'll just name one of, of many but one is look you know well let me start there if you and i know we have four minutes now <laughs> ask some uh, somebody hey what brings you here which is like you the traditional question one way or the next that will invite people into conversation when we're working as a counselor a good friend a therapist you know what brings you here you know and if you ask a 12 year old or 14 year old that question they look at you huh and you ask anybody else you know and that well oh what brings me here is i feel rejected by such as you talk about huh what are you talking about it took me a while to figure out where that Hayes was coming from. They don't know which you you're talking about. What brought me here? Hmm. What do you mean, me? I mean, there's, I have three cyber identities, two avatars that are awake and at work 24 seven. When I'm gaming, I got, you know, it's like there's a lot of selves, right? A lot of me's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are many. So the question is all right, that's an actuality. And in family life, you know, how do we then? Uh, include those figures into the conversation at the dinner table. And very simply, and I, this may be way too simple because of our limited time, but you know, I suggest to parents, look, there are things that are going on in your life that are interesting and that have, you know, you're making discoveries around what's going on for you in technology. Have a conversation. You need to bring the others that are in the home anyway. They're there. They're all there. So let's Bring them out from behind the screen and out from the closed door of the bedroom and into conversation. And the way I suggest to start is, look, you start by sharing your direct experience and invite your kids to share their experience. Hey, here's what's going on for me and who I found really fascinating. Fascinating is a good word. Curiosity, a good word. Who are you finding really interesting, fascinating? And let them share their story about who they're engaged with on screen when the door is closed because yeah. then you're bringing those figures that are technologized into conversation they become embodied essentially imaginally and we're then in relationship rather than completely split off and separate so that's one of many ways but certainly that obviously the other possibilities you just need to spend more nature time to yeah, couple um, screen time there are many ways but that idea of inviting these others into the family conversation. It seems hard and bizarre and like nobody's can go for that. It is remarkable in my direct experience how available that conversation is between parents and or caregivers 
and kids. So you're saying don't say, back in my day, we used to have real friends. <laughs> yeah. I, I know we got to finish, Stephen, but thank you so much for your time. I've, I've loved our time together. It's been years in the make. And thanks for my opportunity to read this book. And people out there, please buy the book. It's coming out very soon. Is it not? When, when is it coming out? Yeah, it's just been out a week or two, and it Good. did really well. Yeah. Good. Go get the book, Stephen. Thank you. A privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Be well, man. Oh